If you have elementary age kids or below, you can release those kids and they will go to their various classrooms. Middle school kids, fifth and sixth and seventh, right out the back there, we've got stuff going on for you guys we'd love for you to be a part of also. Uh, I've spent the past few days in uh, Kingston, Oklahoma, which I didn't know was a town. Uh, it's a real town, and it's down by the lake. And I was teaching a men's retreat um, from Legacy Bible Church in Sherman, and so that was a great, great few days that I've been out there. But Brandon's been kind enough, of course, in our cycle of, of preaching to take this Sunday so that I could go down there and teach these men. And so Brandon's going to be continuing our time in the book of John this morning, and I'm excited to be part of, uh, of his teaching. So Brandon, thank you so much, brother. Well, good morning. How are y'all doing? If y'all need to just wiggle and kind of, there's a lot of wiggles going on up here, so um, it's all right. If you cry, it's, it'll be all right, too. So, um, wow, that is, man, we got a lot of babies around here. Pray for our child care people. They're all volunteers, and they, uh, there's a lot of children there today, so pray that they can bar the doors. Um, so we're going to be in John chapter 11, right at the end of that chapter, and uh, we're going to be finishing up this story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We're now, this is our fifth week in this, in this chapter because there's just so much in there in the reality of this miracle of Jesus raising this man from the dead. And then this is sort of the aftermath of what happens and the transition into really the end of Jesus's public ministry. And so Jesus, at the end of this chapter, we're going to see him kind of go into seclusion and he's not going to come back until well, it's very shortly, but until the next chapter, because uh, the Gospels about Jesus are kind of boring. So, but he comes back in chapter 12 for the Passover, and it's really the last week of his, his earthly life before his sacrificial death for us on the cross and his resurrection forever defeating death. So we are going to be in John chapter 11, and uh, let's pray before we jump into it. Oh, Jesus, how wonderful it is to see all these children and just to bless them and just to ask you to bless and help us to raise them in a way that honors you. You love children, Lord, and children love you. And so we are just so grateful to have all these little creatures that you adore in our building, and we adore them, Lord. And so we ask that you just continue to bless them. Lord, as we worshiped and as we sang and as we prayed earlier, we all just bring ourselves this morning with all of the brokenness, all of the fears, all of the failures, all of the who we are as humans. We, we're here with all of that. And as Billy Graham went to come see you this week, and his songs, I don't know how many times Just As I Am was sung as people came to the Lord after hearing a gospel message. That is how we come to you. We do not come with any pretense. Help us to lay all that aside and just come to your word this morning, ready to learn. Would you help us to understand what you want to teach us through your word today? Give us insight and discernment. As you teach us, would you convict us and help us to walk forward in righteousness, Lord Jesus? I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. We love you and we pray all these things in your risen name, Jesus. Amen. So the context of this is that um, this is like the, the transition after the, the big event, which was Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jesus and his disciples have, uh, are not really even in this scene. 
So we're starting in verse 45 of chapter 11. And I'm just going to read through the end of the chapter, which says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, I guess Martha gets left out there, and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing or what are we doing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So that from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. So, Jesus has this incredible miracle where Lazarus, dead and stinky, is raised from the dead and walks out of the tomb. This is the response. In verse 45, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in Jesus. That's awesome. However, some of those Jews went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. I kind of want to jump on them and say that they're tattling on Jesus, but I don't think that they're really doing that. Maybe they are. I don't know. But they come and they tell these Pharisees, these, uh, these religious rulers, that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So what are they gonna, how are they going to respond? Well, <laughs> like all bureaucrats, they call a meeting, right? Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting. So the chief priests were probably uh, re- retired or former uh, high priests, and the Pharisees were, of course, they're sort of the protagonists, right, in the, in the story, or the antagonists, excuse me, in the story of the Gospels. They're uh, Jewish religious leaders. And they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was this ruling council made up of Sadducees and Pharisees and chief priests. And they were the, the supreme political and uh, legal and religious ruling body in Jerusalem and in, in the area of Judea. And they weren't obviously supreme because they had a, the Roman Empire was over them. But with regards to Jewish affairs, they were, they were the supreme council. So they all gather together to figure out what they're going to do. And in the second half of verse 47, they say, what are we accomplishing or what are we doing or even what are we going to do? And then they said, here is this man performing miraculous signs. It's astounding. They start off with a statement. Here's this man, Jesus. He's doing miracles. They don't even deny it. They don't say he's faking it. They don't say he's like David Copperfielding it. He's sleight of hand. No, he is performing miraculous signs. What are they going to say? They're going to say, let's worship him. Let's put our faith in him and follow him. No, they say, listen, if we let him go on like this, performing miraculous signs that only God can do, everyone will believe in him. 
Well, that should be a good thing, right? But from their perspective, if we let him keep going on, and if everyone believes in him, then the Romans will come. And they will do what? They will take away our place and our nation. The word there for place is the word tapas, where we get the word topography. So you think about the, they mean like a physical place, but also just like our word for place in English, place is not just where we stand. It's your, it's your station. It's your, your place in the world, right? And our nation, that's, that's the word ethnos, where we get the word uh, ethnic, ethnography, all of the, the words, but it's a, it is a group who is gathered in a, with a similar language and similar culture. So it says, they will, the Romans will come and they will take away our place and our nation. They're going to take away our identity. It's fascinating, isn't it? Their response to Jesus literally raising a man from the dead is to have a meeting and say, how are we going to handle this? It's remarkable. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, speaks up. And he says, you don't know, you don't know what you're talking about. Don't, don't you get it? It's better that one man die for the nation than the whole nation perish. Don't you get it? We take him out. The whole thing falls apart. Because they thought that Jesus was going to be a, 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 a resurrectionist. Well, he was, uh, but not that kind of resurrection. Uh, a, uh, he was going to be a, um, a rebel. That he was going to buck the Jewish authority, buck the Roman authority, and try to free the Jews from under imperial Roman rule. And if you tried to do that, the Roman Empire got really mad. Anybody who's watched Star Wars knows you don't push back against the empire, right? So, because the empire strikes back, right? Anyway, so, but that was, they were deeply terrified of that. The Romans gave them a certain amount of freedom. They said, listen, you can still be Jewish. You can still kind of have your way. Just pay taxes, do what we say, and we'll kind of let you alone. But Jesus was threatening that. And so Caiaphas says, listen, we take out Jesus, all his followers are going to scatter. The whole thing is going to settle on down and we can go back to being like we were. But then John, in verse 51, he has this explanation, this almost parenthetical explanation. John says, he did not, Caiaphas did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So it's sort of prophesy, like I think prophets of the Old Testament, God, they would say, thus says the Lord. They would, God would put his words in their mouths and they would then speak them. And so Caiaphas, not knowing what he was saying, prophesies exactly what Jesus is going to do. That he would die not just for the Jewish nation, but for all the scattered children of God. You remember Jesus just a chapter ago? He had said, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them in also. He's talking about the Gentiles. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And John says in verse 52 that, uh, that he would bring them together and make them one. For homework this week, I jump into Ephesians chapter two and Paul explains what's going on here. That Jesus broke down the barrier, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Because in the Jewish mindset, there's only two groups of people. There are Jews and there are not Jews, which are Gentiles. And that God came and he broke down that dividing wall and he made the two groups one. And it's amazing and beautiful, but a topic of another sermon. But go to Ephesians 2 this week 
and, and dig into some of the, uh, the doctrine behind that. But John is saying that Caiaphas, not even knowing what he's saying, is saying exactly what God is going to do. And we're not going to get into it too much other than to say that this gives us this beautiful glimpse into the incredible mystery of the, the wonderful relationship between God's providence in his uh, executing his good, sovereign will in history, and yet human responsibility in that process. That Caiaphas says what he says, wanting to say exactly what he says. He wants to say, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you than one man die for the people than for the whole nation. But God in his providence gives him those words to say. He freely says them and is actually telling the truth about what Jesus will do. Jesus is actually going to die and free all people from their sin. And he's going to make the Gentiles and the Jews into one group called the church. It's incredible. And I don't really understand it. But it's amazing. We get this tiny glimpse into that deep and wonderful mystery. In verse 53, we have this. So from that day on, they plotted to kneel down before him and worship him with all of their life. No. They figured out how they're going to kill him. You get that? They plotted to take his life. So this highest ruling council, they're going to now come together. They're going to figure out, how are we going to kill Jesus? That's the new goal, right? Their new goal is kill Jesus. Everybody's got to have goals, I guess, and that's now theirs. Therefore, in verse 54, because they were going to kill him, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Now, we know from reading earlier on that nobody takes Jesus's life from him. Do you remember him saying that? He says, nobody can take my life from me. I lay down my own life. The Father has given me authority over life and death. When Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't murdered, he gave up his own spirit. So they can't get in and kill him, which that's, that's the part that they don't get. But it's not time yet. Jesus had to do it when he had to do it. And so he no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert. He, he gets out of town and into the country. I don't know if he's in another region. I don't know if he moves up to Galilee. I'm not exactly sure where he is, but he goes away. And then all these people are coming up, all these Jews are coming up from the surrounding country, going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. It was one of the three feasts where they had to return to Jerusalem, to the temple. And they're going to have ceremonial cleansing before the Passover begins. And, and this is an incredible influx of people. Jerusalem was packed. And everybody's looking around for Jesus. Because this is a guy who not long before raised the dead man to life. Big news, right? And they're all saying, where is he? They kept looking for Jesus as they stood in the temple area and they asked one another, what do you think? I love that question. What do you think? It's a great question, by the way, to ask someone about Jesus. Hey, what do you think about Jesus? And then just shh, shh, be quiet and listen to what they say. And as they mumble and as they talk, just be quiet. Just listen to what somebody says about Jesus. It'll tell you so very much. Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But in verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone should find out where Jesus was, they should report it so that they might arrest him. So Jesus now has an arrest warrant issued for him. And the warrant is now out that anyone who sees him is to tell them and he will be arrested and brought into custody and put under trial and 
we're going to see that in about six chapters, but we've got to go 12 through 17 before we get to chapter 18, where he finally gets arrested. So what do we do with all this? Um, I want to kind of zero in on the Sanhedrin, this, this meeting of, of leaders. And I want to just look at what it is that they're doing and why it is that they're doing it. And I want to kind of look at two things. One thing I want to look at is that God will accomplish his purposes, okay? That is a theme throughout the entire Bible, that God will accomplish his purposes. I want you to think back to the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, right? You have Genesis, you've got creation, and then you've got fall, then you've got the flood, then you've got this Tower of Babel, where you've got this huge table of nations, and then God picks Abraham out of this pagan nation and says, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. Everyone will be blessed. And this is a man who is, he and his wife, she was beyond the age of being able to naturally bear children, okay? Abraham, of course, he says, believe God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Story goes on, and in the rest of Genesis, there's this the story of this continually narrowing down of this Abrahamic family, right? And then you have Joseph, and him and his brothers take Joseph, and, and he kind of mouths off. He has this cool dream that they're all going to kneel before him, so they sell him into slavery. He goes into Egypt, big-time trouble, right? But it's the story of God guarding Joseph through all of this process, through all of this tribulation. And at the end of the book, in chapter 50, their father dies, and Joseph's sitting there with their brothers, and the brothers are terrified. And they say, we will be your slaves, Joseph. He has become this mighty ruler in the, in the Egyptian kingdom. You remember what he says? He goes, no. What you meant for evil, God meant for good, so that he could protect and carry out his purposes. What he did is he guarded the nation of Israel. And then, of course, in Exodus, we have the story of their redemption. But that God's plan cannot be thwarted. You see that through the entire thread, goes through the entire Bible. His purposes cannot be thwarted. His children can suffer deep and terrible consequences, but God's purpose cannot be thwarted. If it could be thwarted, whoever was contrary or defeating that purpose, well, that being would be God. Do you see? That is what his sovereignty means. It, it doesn't mean that he squashes everybody. It means that he doesn't need to ask permission to do anything at all. He doesn't ask permission to do it. He, because of who he is, he behaves in a certain way. Because he is good, he is good. He behaves in a good manner. Because he is just, he behaves in a just manner, but he doesn't need to get approval from anybody to carry out his will. It, theologically speaking, it's the concept of his providence, which is the outworking of his goodness in his creation. It's mysterious. We don't always see it happen, and usually providence is viewed in hindsight, right? I don't know if they ever viewed it really while you're walking through it. But that God will accomplish his purposes. You see, it's not our job to accomplish God's purposes. That's his job. Our job is to trust and obey. Remember what he said to Mary and Martha right after, right before he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead? Believe, if you will believe me. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He doesn't say, can you raise Lazarus from the dead? He says, do you believe that I can do it? That is faith. 
And if you are here this morning and you have never believed that Jesus raised from the dead and that you need his salvation, that you have understood that there is a holy God who has just wrath against a sinful people, not because we're bad. Yes, we're bad, but it's because God is just and good and he will not stand in the presence of evil. And so we, when we do things contrary to his character, bring judgment upon ourselves. And there is no freedom from that judgment except for the cross of Jesus. That is his death that paid for that sin and his resurrection that defeated death forever. And that by believing on Jesus, you will be saved. If you've never done that, today is the day. I invite you. Talk to somebody. Come talk to me. I don't, I don't care how you do it. Talk to the Lord about it. Repent of your sin, turn to him and be saved. What did the Sadducees do and the Pharisees and all these guys in the Sanhedrin? Did they see Jesus raise a man from the dead, humble themselves before the glory of Jesus and worship him? No. Did they align themselves with Jesus? No. Because if you align yourself with Jesus, the product of that is life and light and peace. If you don't, if you're against him, the product of that is the opposite of that, which would be darkness and, and death and fear. And that is where they lived. They were deeply and terribly afraid that Jesus would come in and shatter their entire identity. The irony, of course, is that Jesus was coming to do the exact opposite. He was coming to remind them that they're God's children and that the Messiah had finally come. But they refused to see it. And I think that they refused to see it because they were afraid. And the reason that they were afraid because they had forgotten who God is. And they had begun to do it on their own. The second thing I want is to release the burden of trying to do it on our own. See, the Sadducees, they had one purpose, and it was preserve the nation of Israel, uh, the, the Sanhedrin, excuse me. Preserve the nation. Preserve the identity. And so they think, well, that's our job. I'm going to preserve the identity of this nation. The problem was that God had already promised to do that. And then they had taken upon themselves to go ahead and do God's job, which we do very, very poorly when we try to do his job. It's usually a disaster. C.S. Lewis said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, that we are constantly trying to do good things instead of surrendering to God and allowing him to do things through us. Very, very different thing. But the Sanhedrin, they decided to do it on their own power, and they totally missed it. Do you remember why Jesus said he was going to be, Lazarus would be raised from the dead? So that the Son of God would be glorified. And instead of witnessing the glory of a, of a raised Lazarus by the Son of God, the Messiah come to save the world, instead of witnessing that and worshiping him, they make plans to kill him. Why? Well, because they were afraid. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of losing their place and their nation. As a side note, don't be afraid of losing your place in your nation. Um, I'm not going to get political. I just want to remind you. We serve a king who is the king of the world, of all creation. It is not our job. It is not our job to preserve his kingdom. He's going to do that just fine. Our job is to trust him 
and obey him. Not to maintain the thing. Not to grab the tiller on the ship. But to trust, obey, and enjoy him. Why were they afraid? I think it's because they forgot who God is. And when we forget who God is, the only recourse we have is to turn back to ourselves to help us. These are the guys who were supposed to know. They were supposed, they had the Old Testament memorized. They knew the, 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 the Torah backwards and forwards so much so that they thought, maybe there's not enough in there. Let's add some extra rules. They knew the word, but they did not surrender to the God who wrote it. And it makes me think back to Isaiah in chapter six. We already read from Isaiah in worship today. I mean, excuse me. Well, do you remember Isaiah in chapter six, how he came before the Lord? He gets his call into ministry. He's this guy and this uh, King uh, Uzziah had died and, and he's going to the temple to, and, and he sees the glory of the Lord in the temple. And there's, this is the throne of God and there are these seraphim who are flying around him constantly singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when they sang it, the temple timber shook and Isaiah sees it and he looks at them and his only response, he says, woe is me, I am ruined. I am totally undone for I am a man of unclean lips who lives among a people of unclean lips. And how does the Lord respond? Because Isaiah is utterly defeated. He has no response. Does the Lord say, darn right, dirty, rotten scoundrel? He sends a seraph who has to grab a coal with these tongs. Why the angel can't grab the coal with his hands, I have no idea. But he uses tongs, and then he reaches down and he touches Isaiah where? On his mouth. The very part of his body that had condemned him. He says, because I know that when my mouth says things, that shows what's in my heart. And he says, at the very point of your condemnation and your shame and your filth, I will burn that away and I will make you holy. And then God asked this question. He says, who are we going to send to go tell my people to return to me? And Isaiah leaps up into the air and says, here I am, send me. And it is this process that we see over and over again in the Bible of someone coming in front of a holy God, repenting before him, being restored by him, and then being lifted up and sent out to proclaim the message of truth that God gives us. My question to you right now is, what are you missing? What are you missing because you're afraid of something? I don't know what you're afraid of. I don't, most of you actually aren't, don't go to church here most of the time, so I'd have never met you, and I may never see you again. But I'm going to ask you the same question I was going to ask anyway, which is, are you afraid of anything? Because if you're afraid of anything but God, you're going to run into a whole heap of trouble. Remember what I said, why they were afraid? Because they had forgotten who God was. And this is not a new problem. It's the whole reason that all of the prophets were written in the Old Testament. The same Isaiah who got redeemed and had his mouth purified writes maybe the greatest chapter in the Bible, which is Isaiah chapter 40. And it starts out, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And he goes about and he says, listen, I'm going to remind you who I am. In verse 6, it says, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I say, Lord? And the Lord says, tell them this. All men are like grass. 
All their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall beneath because of the breath that the Lord blows in them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. There's anything more contrary to the futile work that humans try to do in the world is this passage right here. But then this mighty God in verse 11 says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, carries them close to his heart, and he gently leads those that have young. All of these mommies and daddies up here with little kids, the shepherd gently leads them in their utter exhaustion because they're tired, because their little ones don't sleep enough. Verse 12 says, Who is measured in the, uh, the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales? Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who has instructed him as counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Everybody rails against the Lord, but nobody wants to kneel before him. We have a world that when a, a sick and broken man goes into a high school and shoots a bunch of children and teachers, that we have people with the audacity to look at God and say, where is your righteous God now? Where is your God who loves all these people? But they refuse to see him for who he is or bow down before him because of their wretched pride. And it is the same pride that caused those men to forget who God was and carry the burden of God's work on their own shoulders. And God is talking to this. In verse 18, he says, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Will you make an idol and cast it out of, out of wood and overlay it so it looks nice and pretty and set up a skilled craftsman to set it up so it won't fall over? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught, reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, than they take root in the ground. Then he blows on them, and they dry up and wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? And who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So now what do you say, O Jacob? And how are you going to complain, O Israel? And say, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Have you ever felt like that? God doesn't care about me. My way is not known to him. He doesn't care what I'm doing. What is God going to say to that? He says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak. Youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And that is the God who we serve. It is not some kind of pie-in-the-sky, fluffy God that everybody writes about in books. It is the creator of the entire universe. And he comes down in the person of Jesus Christ and he raises a dead man to life. And he died on a cross and he rose himself from the dead. And he comes to us today and he wants us to give him his, our entire lives. He wants us to trust in him because he is good and he is mighty and he is worthy 
of our trust. So I'm going to ask you again, are you afraid of anything? Because I'm afraid of all kinds of things. I don't want you to think for one moment that this does not sear me at my very core, that I do not say these things and think, oh, I've got it. Do you know how impossible it is to come up with something like this and not just be leveled? It's brutal. Because God's like, hey, are you going to do what you're preaching? Maybe you're afraid that if you love your wife as Christ loves the church, that she won't love you back. Maybe you're afraid that if you submit to your husband, that he won't treat you like he should be treated. And that may very well happen. Maybe you're afraid that if you knock on your neighbor's door, that they'll reject you. Maybe you're afraid that if you walk across the street, fly across the nation, get on a boat, go to the other side of the planet, that you'll, I don't know, be uncomfortable. What are you afraid of? Because when we fear, our only option is to then trust in ourselves. Because the Lord is not calling the Vine Community Church to just sit here and just grow and get a bigger building. I don't care about a bigger building. You know how many buildings Jesus built? One. It's called the church. Big C. It's all the people who've believed in his name. No mortar. No brick. It's really nice to have a place to be in when it rains. Buildings are not kingdom building. That's something else. The Lord is calling this church to preach the saving gospel to the one, to the city, and to the world. He's calling us to love much and love well as we do that. Remember who the Lord is. When you forget, read Isaiah 40, okay? That is like, I mean, it's like Rocky, right? When you want to watch Rocky, at the end of the movie, you're like, I'm going to run and I'm going to drink raw eggs and I'm going to punch out everybody. Reading Isaiah 40 will pump you up. Or it's like watching Rudy. You want to go run and tackle your brother and read the Bible. Remember who God is. Encourage one another when you're down. Encourage someone even if you don't think they need it. I have yet to encourage a person and then be like, you know, I'm, I'm actually full. I don't need any more encouragement today. I'm, I'm, up, I'm up to here. Never happened. Find one another. And just like the Bible says, encourage one another to love and good deeds. Do it. I want you to remember who God is. I want you to rest in who he is. Stop trying to accomplish his purposes in your own power. It doesn't work. When you do that, you get the Pharisees. Jesus, not a big fan. Rest in his capacity to do his work through you. Your job, utterly trust him, utterly surrender. And then watch him work and enjoy the process. Then I want you to just run with him. Run with Jesus. Run. Why can you run? What if you say, well, I'm too old to run? What did he just say in Isaiah? Legs get tired. Fine, I'll give you strength. You're like, well, you want me to soar? Yes. How am I going to do that? Because I'm going to put the air under your wings and then you're going to fly. But what if I, but what if I lay out of your, but what if I is at the feet of the Lord and ask him to have his way with you? Let's pray. Jesus, I love you. It's amazing that we can talk and that you hear us, that a billion people can call on your name and you hear them all at once and you care about each one of us. I thank you for each soul in this room today, each beloved person that you love, that I love. You tell us that everyone in here matters.
I thank you that this mighty creator loves us so. Please help us, Lord Jesus, to see who you are and to believe and to walk in you. Please help us not fall into the trap of the Sanhedrin, carrying the burden of your work on our shoulders. You tell us, Lord Jesus, to yoke ourselves with you and that your burden is easy and light. Help us release the burden of trying to convert a friend or trying to live holy or trying to do whatever and instead walk in the grace that you've given us. As you're sitting there in your seat, I don't know what you're afraid of, but you know and the Lord knows. As we respond to him in song, as we sing back to him in worship, lay that to the Lord. I promise you his shoulders are broad enough to carry whatever burden that you've been carrying. And instead, yoke yourself to Jesus and enjoy the beloved fellowship that comes with serving alongside him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.